Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan guide to the contents for the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about the content of Another Weekends. But first, I had the distinct privilege of reconnecting, reuniting, conversing once again with the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Zoll about his recent return from a trip to England, about Brexit, about British spirituality, and the things that connect us to the deepest parts of ourselves. I give you Paul Zoll. All right, back on the Mockingcast. I, you know, I joke how David Zoll is the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird Ministries, but right now I've got the one that animated him, the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Zoll back on the podcast. Thank you, Scott. I'm delighted to be on the Mockingcast today. This is great. It's great to have you as always. And David told me that you are on fire. You just came back from England visiting your youngest Simeon, who, by the way, in the new Episco Disco documentary, according to David, does not exist, which is fine by him. <laughs> well, he appears in one photograph, but he's sort of shaded out. It's very funny. That is fine by David. And he told me again, you've, you, you've came back from England, you have so much to say, and you just also released a new podcast, which we're going to post probably this evening, about Tommy Rowe. Give our listeners a preview of it. Um, the, uh, um, uh, it's got a disguised inner message to it, which is related to a song by, um, Tom Jones called The Green Green Grass of Home about a man who's about to be executed, who writes about his hometown. But the actual ostensible message is that when people love, um, songs or videos or television shows or novels or poetry or whatever they focus on that really speaks to them, it's not so much about the thing itself. It's about themselves. In other words, they hear or see a spokesman, uh, a resonant for themselves in the piece of uh, the, the piece of art, and that's really what it's all about. And that if you follow your interests, this especially relates to young men because they're totally focused on this kind of material. If you follow your interests over a 20, 30 year period, you'll find that they almost are all parallel to whatever was going on in your inner life. So that's what I'm talking about. And Tommy Rowe simply was a, um, a forgotten but marvelous uh, pop singer in the early 60s who did a series of like 10 top 10 hits, which are all perfect pop hits, but all relate to those things which are really central, which are disappointment and love. I think for a lot of us in the Mockingbird world and beyond, this is what your podcast has been. I mean, whether you're talking about pop music or literature or theology or by love possessed or Episcopal haberdashery and its development, it becomes a mirror in which we can know ourselves and maybe God at the same time. Uh, those are wonderful words. Um, people write me in those terms sometimes. They do, uh, and that's the whole idea. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to speak from that which is uh, hopefully um, sensate and, and archaeological within me and hoping that that connects with that which is in others. Let me add, by the way, by way of clarification, that Tommy Rowe actually did not just do songs about disappointment. He did songs about teenage love that are, many of them are fun, fabulous, like, oh, sweet pea, come on and dance with me come on, come on, come on, and dance with me. I mean, this is heaven. Well, let me get, you know, when I talk about some of the things, I, I, I try to be ironic, I try to be funny, I try to be light. and, and You and don't yet, try, you succeed. <laughs> well, you're much too nice, but let me, I, I'll talk a little seriously, actually, relevant to Mockingbird types of interests about Brexit. And then I'd like to talk about two church services that we attended that were so good, and I was expecting something so different that they're really worthy of note because they relate to the, the deepest issues that I think at least Christian ministers and pastors are dealing with. But first, Mary and I arrived on the morning of Brexit. The um, announcement was made as the plane was coming down into Heathrow Airport from uh, JFK. And uh, the thing about Brexit, I want to say two things. First, we talked to a lot of English people because we went there to be with English people, people that we've known, especially in the ministry. And not one of them would admit to having voted for Brexit. 
And we talked to many, many people, and including people just in restaurants and in hotels and in various places, and not a single person, well, with one exception, not a single person of the maybe 50 that we spoke to actually would admit to even remotely declaring favor, uh, uh, a favorable view because it's a very unpolitically correct. And so I thought to myself, well, if, if, if this was a straw poll, uh, Brexit would have completely and totally tanked. But this is the, th- this is the thing. It did pass. And it passed uh, in many areas uh, resoundingly. And so that says that there's something in the, in the overall atmosphere in Britain that makes people very, very leery of saying what they actually think. And that's what's so important. And what um, we were struck by was the Bishop of Shrewsbury. Because in the Church of England, uh, it is basically assumed that every single bishop in the Church of England voted to remain. Because to say or to indicate that you voted for Brexit would be to open yourself to accusations that are entirely false, in this case, of xenophobia, Islamophobia, and reactionary nationalism. And so there was not a single bishop, so far as I know, and many of them spoke about it and said about how they voted, uh, including the two archbishops, who was willing to say, to give even any actual ground to the forces of Brexit. So what this means is that the leadership of the Church of England was entirely out of touch with at least the 52% of the people that voted to leave. Now, what was fascinating is the Bishop of Shrewsbury, whose name is Mark Rylands, someone I met a long time ago, a very good guy, he um, either made the mistake or the, uh, uh, I don't know what, he wrote a letter to the Church Times in which he said that he had voted in favor of Brexit. And his reasoning was uh, quite remarkable. It was basically saying that the people in my diocese Shrewsbury is a basically rural diocese, actually have all sorts of concerns about the European Union. He talked about immigration, but from a very interesting point of view about the connection between Commonwealth and uh, immigration of people of color versus EU immigration, which is mostly Polish. And he came out very much in favor of immigration from places like Pakistan and Uganda because he feels that Christianity needs to be re- uh, rediscovered in England and that it's the people from Africa and the Indian subcontinent who have that to offer. So you can see what an interesting, uh, unusual man. But what was so striking is that the Bishop of Shrewsbury, to my knowledge, was the only bishop who was willing to actually say the only bishop that he had voted in this way, which says to me that the Church of England leadership is actually out of touch with the majority of the people who actually attend church. And that's fascinating because one of the things about Christianity and the gospel is it's in touch with real people. And if it becomes in love with ideology, remain in this case, then it's it may be very justified in its belief about inclusion and so forth. That may have real reason, but it's out of touch with the actual people. And that's what we came away with as we reflected on. Now, George Carey, whom we visited, the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury, who now lives in retirement near Newbury, he had actually uh, expressed himself in favor of Brexit. So he, but he's a retired uh, Archbishop. Uh, so he had uh, obviously, you know, made some waves with that. But with the exception of that person, the Bishop of Shrewsbury, it was a marooned island as far as uh, uh, the overwhelming force of the ideology. So that was fascinating. Uh, when we got back, uh, I was very struck by three things. First, uh, John Zoll's video of uh, that has been released on the Vice Network of him as the Episco Disco champion. It, 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 it blew me away. I think you're in it, actually, uh, with Lindy. I think if you look carefully, I can see you in the crowd. Um, Scott, your, your uh, use of the word thermonuclear in the documentary in connection with Grandmaster Flash was just... <laughs> Exquisite. Oh well, I'm. I'm. Uh, that came naturally. Um, but let me say something else that was uh, on a much more a sort of a joyous and positive note. Although I, I think the Bishop of Shrewsbury really gets a star. Um, one of the things that uh, was uh, really powerful. Uh, I found myself uh, three Sundays ago, actually two Sundays ago, in a tiny. 16th century Church of England uh, parish in the middle of um, uh, an area called Fusedale and Patterdale in the Lake District, which is entirely rural. It's hiking country. It's everybody's idea of what hiking through the English Lake District might be like. It is pure and perfect. And a friend of mine and his wife and I and Mary, we all heard that there was going to be an evensong at the little church in the Dale and the Fell. And we drove up. And when we arrived, we were absolutely blown away because we saw something that you almost never see. 
We saw an example of indigenous English-speaking Christianity because the church, a small, beautiful, and unrestored 17th century church with its wonderful old communion table and no frontals or linens and its, uh, uh, its cut-down Jacobean pulpit, um, was packed entirely with local people who were farmers. We talked to them afterwards. The service was conducted by a lay reader, that is a non-ordained man, but in, uh, but, but just full of vim and vigor and fire. And he um, conducted the service from the old 1662 prayer book, which everybody knew. The choir was 18 octogenarians, but they were lovely, who sang sort of charismatic renewal-type songs, as the heart longeth for the uh, waters, so long I have for God. And um, the sense that these were actual people that lived there who were worshiping Christ in particular. And the fella got up, he's about my age, and he gave an impassioned and non-boring, utterly touching speech about uh, a sermon that was really got to got to the heart. And as we went out, my friend, who's a longtime clergyman in the Church of England, said, you know, I, I hear that man and it gives me, a, I, I want to jump, I, I want to go back into the ministry. I, this is what it's all about. This man was preaching as a layman to a packed church of regular indigenous people using the old prayer book, the old service, and yet with such feeling and warmth and pastoral care. And I watched him greet the people at the end, one after another after another, and it was just, um, it was almost perfect. But to find that in Cumbria, way up in the genuine middle of nowhere, such a thing exists in the British Isles, um, completely unconstrained and utterly unartificial, was to me a, 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 a deeply moving, actually uh, a tear-inducing experience. What, what in particular was tear-inducing and, and moving? It sounds like it really stuck with you. Well, what it was, it, he actually didn't preach the gospel. He he was an evangelical. He was low church and evangelical, and he was totally filled with the passion of Christ. He he was really trying to 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 encourage all these people to share the gospel message with their friends. So these are all sort of these are all sort of English people out of a out of a rural Ealing Studios comedy. Uh, they're all English. They, they all look like Miss Marple, you know. Uh, but he was. But they're real. They were real, and um, he was basically telling us that as Christ has loved us, so we must love the world. And I just thought to myself, you know, here we are in this these tiny little rural villages, and what was powerful about it was not so much what he said, but the fact that he was on the same page as the people. He was completely, it was like the Bishop of Shrewsbury, this man was in touch, and at one point he prayed passionately, but without um, constraint, for a young teenage boy who had disappeared recently in the community, probably a drug-related situation, and he prayed for the finding of this young, troubled teenage boy, and he was so sincere, I really sort of wanted to go out and organize a search. It was that, it was that. So it was more the tone, um, you're not really going to often find uh, the, the pure, you know, justification by faith gospel in any place, but what you found was Jesus Christ was at the center of his impassioned call to these local people to simply be themselves in the light of the gospel. And we came out of that church, and my friend who's been in the ministry forever, and a very experienced man, and a fine, fine Christian minister, said, you know, I think this, I think right now I'm going to go out of retirement and I'm going to volunteer to go back into the church. <laughs> so that was the first thing. Now I'd love to also talk about the second thing. Lay it on us. Hey, hey. Uh, Tommy Rowe sang the song, uh, Hey Everybody. Uh, now, back to you. Um, the following Sunday, uh, Mary and I attended the christening of our grandson, Arthur McLean Poonzal. Well, it was a baptism, but I want to talk about it because it was very, um, of course, you may say, uh, we may all say, well, that's easy for Paul because it was a personal service. But what was amazing, it, it took place at St. Aldate's Church, which is a traditional evangelical, quote, stronghold in the Church of England. There are two evangelical parishes, uh, almost side by side, St. Aldate's and St. Ebb's, and they've always been the center of the John Stott sort of school of thought um, in the Church of England, which normally can be very confronting for Americans. American Episcopalians because they don't wear robes. The clergy do not, they explicit, they uh, rather uh, intentionally do not wear robes. They just wear coats and ties, if that. Um, and uh, they uh, have completely uh, discarded what apparently discarded the prayer book. And it's all with screens. You know, you might say, oh my gosh, I'm in a PCA church somewhere or, you know, a, a free church in this country, but not. 
but not. Because what? First, the, uh, there was a real confession at the beginning. A real confession. Uh, it was in contemporary language, but it wasn't, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, I've sinned through my own deliberate fault. The confession was powerful. Then, they I feel put like in a lot of religious context in this country, it's like, uh, the confession goes something like, Lord, we've worked so hard for all your causes you love, but not quite hard enough. At best. And you just wind up like feeling better about yourself after the confession I of sin. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and there's no absolution. This confession was real. Then we had the baptism of our grandchild, which was done with tremendous panache and joy and love and sincerity. There were trillions of children. The place was packed, even though it's not term time. So there were no students who were usually half the congregation. Every race, every creed, every kind of person. There was a transgender homeless person sitting behind me, uh, six foot tall, a transgender person. And she, he is obviously utterly and completely welcome there. But after the confession and after the baptism, which is real, all the children go to their classes. So it doesn't have that sort of folksy, silly, you know, uh, where we're, the children have to be part of a family in the service. They all leave. And the man, the, uh, an assistant preached the sermon. And while it was too long, it was extremely accessible. It was simply about p- people who are in deserts in their lives. When you're in the desert because of failure, stress, some breakdown, some meltdown. And the fellow who preached it spoke Sorry, he spoke for about 40 minutes, and I would say it was 10 minutes too long. But as the rector, whose name is Charlie Cleverly, he's uh, about my age, he's the rector of the church, he, I said, you know, Charlie, um, the sermon was too long, but it was good. And then he said something. He said, well, yes, he said, that, that particular man always preaches too long, but it's almost always anointed. And I said, oh, my gosh. And then, now, I haven't even gotten to the, the sermon. He put, he put the issue, while it's evangelical in doctrine, he put the issue straight to me. He put it straight to me and to the, everyone. And then at the end, but not as a kind of coda or postscript, before the service was over, he said, well, now we have our time of prayer. And anybody in the congregation who wants to come forward for prayer, come forward. And uh, we'll pray with you. And he then prayed for everybody who might be, you know, in trouble or his prayer was so in touch pastorally with his congregation that almost the whole place came forward. I mean, 60 people came out of their pews, and then he had to announce in this very, he has a slightly posh uh, upper class, uh, you see, slightly posh, upper middle accent. He said, well, he said, now, if, if there are any, we've run out of prayer volunteers. If there are any in the congregation who are other prayer volunteers, please come forward because we need you. And, and so this, and, and it was so moving. I felt I was Bishop Jakes in Canterbury Cathedral, and my um, and I started to cry. And then um, at the middle of it, he says, "Now he says there may be some of you who would like to come forward." This is, these are English people, you know, English people, John Galsworthy people. Most of them don't do this. And he said, um, "He said now, if there's anyone here who's not feeling they can come forward but has a need, I will pray for you now." And he prayed again for everybody with you know the needs of the unknown soldiers and. And suddenly he said, now, if anybody else does want to come forward, and <laughs> another 40 people surge forward. Now, this is England. This is post-Brexit. This is Oxford. This is secular. This is not even in term time. And a someone very near and dear to me said, you know, uh, I'm going forward. And I said to myself, well, maybe I should go forward. I mean, what I'm trying to say is the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit and serity, coupled with the sense of humility on the part of the clergy, which you could cut with a knife, coupled with the sermon that actually talked about reality, real people and real things, even though it was by an English-accented person, created an, and, and created an environment of extraordinary power. And I talked to Simeon and attends the church with Bonnie and is a regular and much loved there. He's very much loved and is very active part of St. Aldate's. He said a great thing. He said, Dad, there are about five things that have to really go well in a church service. You know, there's the music, there's the sermon, there's the prayers, there's the minister, there's the welcome. You know, those are sort of the five things, maybe a few others. And he said, it's not always like that at St. Aldate's. He said, but today, all five came together. So here I am, you know, after all these years in the ministry, and I go to church after church after church, except for Jacob Smith's church, which is unbelievable in New York City, but many churches one attends are relatively flat in affect, just flat. And here we go into this church, which before when I've been there has been almost like a, almost like, I don't know, uh, like a fifth grade Sunday school class at times. I suddenly was taken into the presence of God by means of the Holy Spirit. And I said to Simeon, Simeon, this is your theology. 
I mean, this is your theology come to life in an English regular parish. And Simeon, one of his children, who's very little, is even in a Bible study. (laughs) Cracked me up. Anyway, which is wonderful. So that's my little report from the trenches. First Martindale Old Parish in the Fells of Cumbria with not a living person except a zillion sheep as far as the eye can see, and yet indigenous, powerful, Christ-affirming Christianity lay led, and then you go to this thriving Church of England evangelical parish with humility, and, and you wouldn't even know the rector is the rector. You wouldn't even know he's the rector. You just think maybe he's an old guy who sort of uh, what they call an old age pensioner who happens to be there. And I noticed, Scott, after the service, that we were all still sitting in our seats, kind of blown away by the service. And he was going from person to person in the pew, just checking on everyone, talking to them. And it was not phoned in. So God save the queen and those parishes. It sounds like it was a real time of inner and spiritual renewal. Well, it, it, I, I feel that anyone present, and I'm one of them, I, I came back feeling, you know, gosh, if someone said to me, uh, you know, Paul, you know, why don't you give a hand in a parish like that? Or would you like to be part of that, you know, team? Uh, uh, I would, uh, you know, I immediately, like my friend in Cumberland, I wanted to say, um, you know, yes. I mean, if this is what they're doing, uh, I immediately wrote, Scott, I immediately wrote a, uh, a clergyman friend of mine, and I said, you have got to drop everything. Who am I to say? You've got to drop everything and go and spend three days with Charlie Cleverly, five days in in Oxford, and just follow this guy around. Um, because even though this guy I was talking to was a really great, fantastic fellow, I said, this, uh, you know, I just, if you go, I'll go. I felt like um, in the Titanic, you know, when Leonardo DiCaprio says to Kate Winslet, if you jump, I'll jump. <laughs> That's how it felt. Do you feel like the the podcast for you now is sort of a different kind of pulpit now that you're not regularly serving a parish week to week? I mean, I've heard a lot of what you said over the years in podcasts and talks about preaching and the importance of authenticity and being real. And does the parish like mitigate or is it problematic in regards to like being real? And is this kind of, are you getting the golden age of PZ's preaching through the podcast? is my question. Well, what happens when you're in the church is that you 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 have behind you an uncertain um uh peanut gallery. You see, you can carry this message to the world with great because the message is what the world needs, you know. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, you know. Bert Backrack and Hal David, we 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 have a message that is tailor-made for troubled, sorrowing, suffering, mourning, lost individuals. It's tailor-made and it comes across. But what the problem of normally in uh, parishes is that you've almost you've always you've always got two people behind you in the peanut gallery who, for transferential reasons, have nothing to do with you personally, but they have to do with their own issues, are constantly sniping at you. It could even be a bishop, you know. God forbid. Uh, it's usually not, but let's imagine it, it. It it you're being sniped at by people who are projecting onto you. So here you're giving everything you have as best you know. You're on your knees, and you're really trying to offer the message of justification by faith through grace, uh, and really trying to um, carry this as 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 humbly and as realistically and as accurately uh, and as in with as much ingenuity as you can. And yet you do have behind you in a hierarchical church the potential for being sabotaged. So this is why, um, so I don't have that on the podcast. Um, uh, and, uh, so in a way the podcast, because it's so tied in with my emotional reaction to music or various stimuli or my own inner life, um, I feel a freedom sometimes, but I have to say, I, somebody, my mother-in-law, she rest in peace, once said to me, Paul, when you're in the pulpit, and she heard me speak in some church, big old church somewhere, she said, don't speak like you're in the pulpit. Speak like you do when you're teaching a class, the rector's class. To talk like you do normally, which I do in, in, the, in the rector's class, the forum. She said, just talk to, one, talk to, talk to us that way. Well, if I, if in the podcast, that's my real voice. So why I say this to preachers is talk as if you're just talking to Scott Jones, as it were, or one individual whom you know. Talk to that one person 
Yeah, this is where I think, you know, people talk about this with political candidates even more intensely because we're in the political season. But when someone's reading for a teleprompter, even if you can't see the paper, you know they're reading a script, like even if they don't look like it. Well, I have to mention that yes, a fascinating point. Uh, I, I'm very reluctant to get into anything controversial, but it, 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 it's an immediate segue. Um, someone was writing about uh, Trump was speaking the other night somewhere in Indiana, maybe, or maybe it was North Carolina. I can't remember where. I didn't. I, didn't, I was. I wasn't watching it, but I noticed somebody whom I respect was commenting on it, and um, uh, and in the middle of it, he suddenly said, um, "This man uh, speaks with." with so much heart. And then he compared it to another candidate who he felt was very, uh, uh, was watching over the shoulder all the time, watching the back all the time. And I just thought to myself, well, maybe heart people might not agree that about Trump, but he, he does speak what, what comes into his heart. And even Cornell West, who is someone I respect, I don't agree with him, but I do respect Cornell West. And I certainly agree with him about drones. Cornell West said, um, he, is abhor, abhors Donald Trump for all the normal reasons. But he did say earlier, he said, Brother Trump is a real person. He said, Brother Trump and Brother Sanders, he said, are real people. And that is what the preacher, let us simply say that the preacher, if he or she is not a real person, you just might as well, um, they're, they're going to let down the power of this, uh, this word. Paul, thanks for taking some time with us. It's always a, a pleasure, a joy, uh, and a privilege to have you on. And I just, I mean, you, your work has meant so much to so many of our listeners and readers at Mockingbird, including and especially me. Thank you, Scott, with all my heart. Until next time, fare thee well. David, I call you the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird, but our listeners just heard from the force that animated you. <laughs> Your dad, PZ. It was a great conversation, as everyone, and I'm sure, is loving it. And Sarah Condon. Hey. Houston, how hot is it there? It's really hot. It's like our air conditioner cannot keep up hot. One time we were, when I was a kid, we were driving. My uncle... Great uncle Vernon, who's a, a blessed memory, wonderful man. We saw one of those church signboards, and it said, "You think it's hot here? Try dot dot dot." Oh yeah. And, and my uncle Vernon goes, "Try St. Louis. The humidity. <laughs> the humidity. It'll kill you." Uh, so it's but and it's nothing compared to Houston. So before we get down with our rundown uh, and talking about the contents of another week ends as it has, I just want to say something. We've been like. Uh, we've we just sent a fundraising letter and no one has taken us up yet on the recording of the Seinfeld AI voicemail message. Now it was we didn't really set specific benchmarks, so tonight I actually am upping the ante. So if you if any listener makes a five hundred dollar one time gift or a what would that be like twelve is that twenty five. The 20, 20 times 12, 25. Okay, at 25, carry the two, yeah. Or let's say a $25 monthly gift or a, no, that wouldn't be, 50 bucks a month would be, let's say 45. <laughs> so if you make a recurring gift, you, 45 bucks a month, right? Recurring for at least a year or a $500 one-time donation. David Zoll will write a, Short, I'm talking, you know, 250 words to maybe to 300 words, or a short, witty analysis of of your favorite band or film talking about your life and then post it on your Facebook wall and you'll have that, you know, in perpetuity. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I did not know this was happening and I didn't even know uh, <laughs> that, that, um, that I was volunteering tonight, but I am so happy to go along. I just can't tell you. At the thousand... Dollar or what would the uh, correlate be like? Twelve. I'm so bad. Eighty bucks. That'd be eighty bucks. Eighty bucks for a year or a thousand dollar flat gift. I will do an interview with you, uh, and we will either we'll do something special with it on the web page or something like that. We'll it, it'll be featured as a special cast. We'll have it, and you'll have a copy of it. HD and well HD audio, which there is no HD, but if there was in your mind, it will be HD, but the audio will be perfect. It will be fun. It will be engaging. 
The big ticket item. This is the big ticket item for two th- for a two thousand dollar gift. Whoa! Or that would be somebody do the math. Uh, that would be fifty dollars. <laughs> wait, five hundred. <laughs> a hundred. That's like a hundred. No. So let's say ninety. Because so that's a bargain on one level. I don't even understand. I so gang. I never considered becoming a mathematician, but like I guess that would be like uh, <laughs> that would be two hundred bucks a month, like one hundred and eighty. 180 ish range. I literally a month. can't believe you're doing the math. If you, okay. Like, okay. I can't yeah. believe that's happening. I might edit this out. But for if the 180 ish, whatever is just under two grand for a monthly uh, year, or for a $2,000 lump sum, Sarah Condon will do a video that, uh, uh, and basically castigating someone who has posted on the issue of the day and <laughs> saying why. They need to get their pennies out of a bunch and that God loves them anyway and loves us all. And we'll be charmingly rebuking in a gracious way, pointing your friend that irritates the heck out of you on social media. She will do a gracious rebuke and reorientation to the cross. That's the big ticket item, people. That's what you want. That person that you it makes you angry. This is giving them the virtual bomb of Gilead. It, it'll be and and very few people will get this reference, but it will be um, a la Julia Sugarbaker. Uh, that was the night the lights went out in Georgia's speech from Designing Women. Very few people will get that, but if you do and Ooh. you have that money, I'm happy. Ooh. I used to practice that speech in the mirror as a third grader with my mom's brush, so like I can do it. Uh, Scott, I think if people don't, don't want to be interviewed, then you, we will take, uh, we will do everything in our power to try to interview the person of their choice. Oh, uh, we'll that? do the person of their choice, absolutely. Them or the person of their choice. Then again, you know, we're clearly making this up as we go, so. So there we go. So this is, and in all seriousness, we thank you so much for your generosity. There have been so many people who have been incredibly generous. And as Billy Crystal used to say in front of Sunday, you know who you are. One of the great skits of Saturday Night Live. So now we head into another weekend. And let's start with Pokemon. David, what's going on with Pokemon? Well, we're actually going to post something about it tomorrow that really... I think it's a really fantastic piece, uh, but I can I can spoil part of it for you. This this Pokemon Go app has been downloaded faster than something like any other app in the history of the world, and is already on track to be replaced Twitter. I think as mm-hmm. the most downloaded app on at least on Android phones, and everyone is is my of- wife and I contributed two of those downloads at dinner. Yes, so, oh wow, and we each got our first Pokemon. What the Mazel so I guess. If you if you don't play it, if you haven't heard of it, you've probably heard of it by now. But if you don't play it, it kind of maps a Pokemon hunting game onto your actual what what you're looking at in front of you. So the, the the opinion's been divided. Some people love it and think it's the coolest thing that they've ever seen. Some people don't know like no idea what it is um, and what all the fuss is about. And then, then there's a backlash, a huge, a pretty, pretty substantial backlash already. People that are being superior about it or aloof or basically just, um, kind of a backlash against gamer culture in general. And it is, you know, I, I, I find it uh, a very interesting topic to look into, like the gamification of everyday life and, and everyone being mediated by screens and whatnot. But what's happening right now is that the, both the Washington Post and the New York Times, um, and I think even these these private uh, journals have all run pieces basically from fr- from major museums in in Washington D.C. saying uh, like the Ho- the Holocaust Museum had to issue a statement that it is absolutely inappropriate to uh, play Pokemon Go at the Holocaust Museum, and um, because this is what was going on, I think there someone uh, some soldier in Iraq actually was playing Pokemon Go at like a like like a real battle. And he put that on Facebook, and so it's um, and people are you know not watching where they're going. They're 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 getting hit by cars. It is uh, 
it's really a phenomenon that's fascinating to look at. Uh, I think that you've, there are also op-eds saying, hey, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the sort of mundane world of suburban Ohio through a new lens of wonder, uh, you know, and, and, and people are walking in the way that they haven't in a long time and they're seeing their surroundings. They're not actually staring at the screen. They're staring at the world through the screen rather than just at the screen itself. So there's a lot of back and forth about this, but uh, all I know is that Scott got his first Pokemon tonight. Sarah, let me ask you this. The Holocaust Museum thing. Mm -hmm. What if this is Pokemon trying to raise awareness about anti-Semitism? And it's, it's, you know, it's insidious effects. I mean, like, is this, could this be something? I don't think that Pokemon is on a mission to make people appreciate uh, history more at all or to understand what happened to people a long time ago. I think that... You know, I think that always the cynic, always the cynic. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, I think this is just one. more. I way look at to, the world with like, hope filled colored glasses. Yeah, baby. exactly. I think this is just one more way to like, you know, like totally uh, take over our world. I love in the AV club piece, which honestly yeah. is the funniest thing I read about this. They said the thing about, um, oh, gosh, that people it? are basically logged into Skynet, that the, 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 the Terminator thing, where, right. because it shares all of your whereabouts, you have access to your phone. I mean, it is yeah. the privacy yeah. that you that you do willingly sign away to play Pokemon Go is dystopian. But <laughs> well, there's the brilliance and it's like basically if Pokemon Go gains artificial consciousness and decides that humanity is threatening the digital lives and freedoms of its Poke comrades will we'll be fighting in pokey pits for the amusement of our pokey lords in no time. <laughs> really funny. I just, you know, Scott and I were talking about this earlier this week. Like I just need some news items that I don't have to feel strongly about. And, um, I can't get one, you know, like this came up. So which party in the election, like in, in one week, it, who will be, will Donald Trump be the pro or anti pro? Like this is going to be, well, and we're going to be, pro, we're going to, you know, it's one, each party is going to embrace one side of the Pokemon debate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of, and you know, we, we want to say this is like a new thing that people have to have strong opinions and maybe that's true, but to give you a very bizarre, uh, Southern story from the 1930s, there was a small town in Louisiana that had two politicians running against it, I believe for mayor and people either f- voted for one candidate or the other based on what they did with the liquid that's in the bottom of a pot when you make greens. So one of them said you drink it because it's called pot liquor, spelled L-I-K-K-E-R. And the other one said you dip your cornbread in it. And that was that was like this major dividing line for these people in this small town Louisiana in the 1930s. Well, I'm just saying as the only person here that uh, speaks from experience... The it was intriguing. I didn't know what I did or why I did it, but it it was interesting. I mean, it mm. was it was. I don't know what it was, but it was something. Mm. But uh, you know, and again, I did it. Uh, pokey lovers, it's not an uncritical like you know embrace and pokey haters. I think the the piece we're running tomorrow is very positive, but it's it's really positive about play in a world where everything is become work, and uh, every and even the games that we that are popular these days are usually productive. Like you, yeah, you're talking all about how you can you know l- lose weight by by uh, you know making your weight loss into a game, or you can you can you can get more out of your day by making it into a game. That's super better stuff. It's uh. This Pokemon thing seems pretty unadulterated play, uh, and that's where Eric comes down on it. That that, that you know, life lived in the light of crisis. There's nothing you have to you have to do. Everything becomes kind of aff- affective, and uh, and fun. therefore the possibility of fun is around every corner. Believe it's it or not. One quick piece that from also from the AV Club that China is afraid right of releasing the new Ghostbusters. Hmm. Because they are afraid of those ghosts. Well, is there, they, it's, China is like, uh, I took some Chinese history in college. The, the, the ancestor. Wor- <laughs> I took Hit it, Dave. I, 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 I watched the history let me channel. Pull, let me pull something out of my rear end. The, uh, but the ancestor worship, I've also seen Mulan recently, so I know that they like. It was streaming on Netflix for a long time, and my kids like uh, the Eddie Murphy character. But it's it's all about uh, ancestor worship. The whole thing is about ghosts. Uh, so I guess it's ingrained there. Uh, I, I mean, I have no. Again, 
Sarah, it's nice to feel, not really feel anything. Everyone's got these strong opinions about the new Ghostbusters being all female. And, you know, it's Ghostbusters. Like, it's, it's not going it, to... It, basically, the official censorship guidelines prohibit the showing of films that promote cults or superstition, which is a holdover from the days when the Communist Party and its strictly secular ideology kept a tight hold on Chinese media. So even though these things are looser now... This is where they're taking their stand. This is where the culture war is, is taking place in China. I mean, doesn't that put things in perspective? It's, it's not, I think I it's kind like of beautiful. I making a joke about how they've never liked girls, but I won't. The, the Chinese? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think you just made it. I think it was made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so, by the way, I, I misspoke last week, I, which I can't believe I did. And misspoke? I, I feel outed and like i it does not i hope it doesn't take away my credibility in this field but the star trek movie has not been released i said i can't believe i had seen it i didn't know the release date i thought because i was seeing interviews that it was already out i repent to the trekkers shame out there. <laughs> shame, shame. Yeah. and not trek i'm saying the, the right term the trekkers okay the trekkers that listen to our audience and they're out there i and I, in fact i talked to one actually last week about after the show and i but the, Lindy and I are thinking of doing a double feature day at the movies, seeing Ghostbusters and the new Star Trek film. So maybe we'll do a little movie review. We will probably eat so much popcorn that we will need to do an August reduction. Awesome. But it is, you know, but it's much interesting though, because I was thinking about the fear of superstition. And I do think this is the Achilles heel of religion, even at its best. I mean, faith is at their best. Like we're, you're always kind of second away from superstition. And so like, if you look at like Anselm's Curdeus Homo, you know, why did God be, become man, which is kind of one of the first substitutionary atonement. For, it's the first, really, framework. It was a demythologizing project. I mean, Anselm was thinking, people are saying God owes the devil, and what, God had to fool the devil, and he's like, no, this is... So he was a demythologizer in the best sense of the word. Like, there was a kind of folk mythology. And so the whole, like, or lex orande, lex credende, the rule of prayers, the rule of faith, can be really weird when people are praying, like, you know, prosperity prayers, or other things, you know, or revenge prayers. So, like, Superstition is like a cute thing at certain points, but it, it's also the thing. It, it, it's the it's the Achilles' heel of faith. If uh, if things are always like fragile in the age of ex- on the cusp of extinction because of the fragility, uh, the way this plays out in genuine faith is the way it devolves into folk religion. So, and that happens in every country. And most, you know, we talked about the whole bad faith piece. I mean, it's we're in the midst of it in this political cycle and in this moment in our culture. And that being said, let's talk Freud. I, the Freud is going undergoing slight rehabilitation in certain uh, Sigmund, as as in Sigmund, not Lucian um, or Anna. Uh, you know, a lot of people have sort of poo pooed the ego, id, super ego, triumvirate, and and uh, you know his obsession with you know the sexual impulses and. Oedipal complexes and whatnot. And, um, so it's, it's fashionable. It's been long been fashionable to kind of trash him in uh, introductory psych courses and, and whatnot. But, um, I, I guess through the study of metacognition, people are re-embracing, uh, Freud's understanding of the superego. And, you know, I've, I've always thought that the superego is basically what we, the cognitive f- description of the law. It, it's, it's the managing, it's the, the judging, the, um, the, the the boundary and uh so the, what, when they say metacognition metacognition is is simply how do we think about our thoughts or how do we know about our our knowledge and the example people always give is that uh, a person in a, a game show knows the answer to a question but they have to decide how 
confident they are in their answer. So they're thinking about their thought. Basically, metacognition, the stronger our metacognition is, the more aware, because they tie it into mindfulness, and that's actually strengthening your metacognition of paying attention to how you're thinking and, and sort of what's going on around you. And the, 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 the way that that can be trained, it, it functions almost, uh, you know, empirically, it functions exactly like Freud described the superego. So interesting stuff. Sarah, how is your metacognition these days with the heat how does the heat in houston affect your metacognition it's it's uh it's it makes it so much better actually because i'm just always uh <laughs> you're not moving not, yeah i mean you're you're completely still yeah i mean i thought this was a really interesting piece I and mean, it, it for me i read it and thought just about how valuable really good therapy can be for people because it makes them so much more aware of the choices that they're making and why they're making them. And that dialogue can be very helpful. Frankly, it can be really helpful. So anyway, I, you know, it was interesting. You know, Tim Ferriss, whose podcast I like a lot, he, he interviews like high performing people in every kind of field. And he said that like something 80 or some percent of people he's talked to or 85% all have some kind of mindfulness practice. And I think like it could be the law. One level. It also could be the cause. Your dad it, has said David, like Paul Zoll, PZ, the one, the only, the inimitable, has said that, and I think some people thought he was doing Eastern thought or something, but he says, you know, and then you have this moment and you look in the mirror and there is God. And I mean, I think like if the Father is God for us, if the Son is God with us, I mean, the Spirit is kind of God in us. And I think there's a sense in which maybe metacognition at some point can be the thing that, that allows you to accept the thoughts that are judgmental of yourself or others. Accept the legalistic aspiring thoughts. Accept the messy thoughts. The beauty of grace is it allows you to see things uh, with realism because it's you know it allows you to be present at what's really there instead of making a fantasy reality or something that you know creates a script that you know it, we we. Yeah, feel th- we need to be there. I think that that's probably more. Uh, this is where the superego notion and the metacognition kind of uh, depart from one another because the superego is sort of. At least the way I've always understood it, it's, it's understood really as prohibitory and legislative in the, in the mind. And the metacognition, yeah, you're right. The mindfulness thing actually is, in 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 a sense, it's sort of internalized grace and um, an acceptance of the good and the bad and the dysfunction. So maybe there's maybe it's not as similar as people think. But uh, again, anytime people are talking about Freud, I think it's good because it's uh, he, he was he had a low anthropology. What you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I want to know What you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind So let's go from the 9th or early 20th century Back to the 16th century. We had a really interesting piece from First Things, right? Yeah. Timothy George. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of these reflections on, as we hit 2017, on uh, 500 years of the Reformation. What does it mean? And Timothy George here takes uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, the great historian, takes his his phrase, tragic necessity of uh, the Reformation that he sort of coined right before Vatican II when he was still a Lutheran. And what, um, but what, what fascinated me in the piece is that today there's a movement in ecumenical circles to kind of erase the Reformation, that that's, that's, that stands for division, not for unity. And let's get back to the church fathers. Let's get back to the patristic age. Let's, let's really get back to the pure thing at the heart of Christianity as though there's this thing that's pure other than Jesus and Holy Spirit. What George said is that actually the Reformation itself was an attempt to get back to uh, the church fathers, that Melanchthon was the greatest patristic scholar in the world at that point, and Calvin was a close second. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful piece, not just uh, insightful with regards to kind of historiography, but um, just moving. Sarah, uh, Sarah you, you're a passionate Protestant. I am right? a passionate Protestant. I have very strong feelings about... Um, about, about what don't you have strong feelings uh, about? Pokemon Go. <laughs> I like that. I don't have strong feelings I like about that. that. I like that. Yeah, I. Uh, so when I was in seminary, and I think he he does speak to this somewhat, like how we just the Reformation just gets kind of skipped over, and it very much felt that way in seminary, especially in terms of the kind of theology that we were reading. I felt like we read right up to like maybe 200 years before things really got going, and then like I remember having this medieval theology professor. 
And he, you know, one thing we forget about the Reformation is that there were these wonderful Catholic um, mystics who were writing, women mystics, who were writing just on the cusp Mm -hmm. of the Reformation beginning. And, um, And they were really, in some ways, writing towards a lot of the Reformation theology that we have. And in coming to their own identity and coming to their own identity in a, in a relationship with Christ in, in, a, in a different way. I'm thinking specifically here of someone who I love, who's sort of an obscure name, Mechtild of Magdeburg. But anyway, <laughs> my professor stood in front of us and said, said I put the girls at the end because I don't think we'll get to them. And that was, so we read Thomas Aquinas the whole time. Yeah, and just didn't, like, I ended up writing a paper about her because I really loved her. And um, God's mercy was that I got pregnant halfway through the semester. So Mm. I went to him and said, I'm having really bad morning sickness. And he said, you don't have to come to class. And I was like, we're good here. So that was sort of how how I navigated it. But I mean, I, you know, so people really, Reformation, the Reformation, the subject of it, and Reformation Day especially, were very heated uh, subjects in seminary because you aren't really allowed to be happy about it. Um, which for me was always very confusing because I went to a seminary that sort of fancies itself as liberal and I'm a woman and I'm being ordained, which feels like the fruit of the Reformation in some ways. And I'm also married to a priest, which definitely feels like the fruit of the <laughs> Reformation. So I'm a big fan, you know, for, yeah. for really pragmatic <laughs> reasons. Um, a debonair priest, I yeah, might add. Absolutely, yeah. So a prince among men. So anyway, yeah, I, I thought this piece was great, and I do think we just skip over it. A couple of years ago, my friend Peter Lehar, who I think is going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, because uh, he's got a new book out, although he writes a new book every six months, so it's not, you know, but he does indeed have a new one out. He wrote this piece two years ago called The Future of Protestantism, and it, the subtitle was The Church Must Die to Be Raised. And in it, he says, in the beginning, God created the world in six days, and each day improved on the previous one. He spoke light, separated light and darkness, said it was good. Come the next day, and first day, it was not good enough, so he separated the waters below from the waters above in sort of firmament. And he talks about how God, even before the fall, is like tearing apart to make new. And then he says something in the same rhythm continues after the fall with God's judgment being a critical addition with God tearing down in order to build up. But then he says, after this kind of riff, he concludes this thought with, with, with these words, which I think are so moving. So God creates Israel as tribes, then as a kingdom, then scatters them among the nations, then sends them to the nations, each good, each followed by the darkness of the tomb, each bringing good brighter than the good that preceded it. Mm. At each juncture, God calls his people to shed old ways and old names, to die to old routines and ways of life, including ways of life God himself has established. We do not like this. Mm. We do not want our world shattered, even if God rebuilds from the rubble. We do not want to die. As Eugene Rosenstock Hussey puts it, Christianity and future are synonymous because Christians confess that the world ends and begins again and again. Christianity and future are synonymous because resurrection faith alone enables us to meet the world's end and to die to our old habits and ideals, get out of our old ruts, leave our dead selves behind and take the first step into a genuine future. Hmm. So may there be reformation again and again, and again, and even with us. May we all be open to futures that are graced, unexpected, and where we can all begin again at the beginning. I will talk with you all next week. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please drop over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one, and share it with a friend. Post something about it on social media. If you want to support what we do, you can go to our website and find the support link. We exist because of the generosity and passion and enthusiasm of you, our listeners. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend. Catch you next week.